In a world where uncertainty reigns supreme, where shadows of chaos dance at every turn, one truth emerges unyielding. Preparation is not a luxury, but a lifeline. Behold the Wellness Company, a beacon of readiness amidst the tempestuous seas of fate. Envision a sanctuary of tranquility, where the tumult of unforeseen medical crises finds no purchase. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit stands as a bastion of assurance, a fortress of resilience against the unseen foes of health. Within its sacred confines lie the tools of salvation. Ivermectin, to ward off the insidious whispers of disease. Emergency antibiotics, to quell the raging storms of infection. Antivirals, to vanquish the relentless tides of contagion and more. The Wellness Company Medical Emergency Kit is not merely a collection of supplies. It is the embodiment of preparedness itself. Crafted by the hands of esteemed healers led by luminaries such as Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. James Thorpe, Dr. Harvey Risch, and Dr. Drew Pinsky, this kit stands as the pinnacle of safety, the zenith of prevention. These truth-seeking doctors have forged a testament to vigilance, a testament to the unwavering pursuit of well-being. Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the Wellness Company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health forward slash strange planet and use promo code strange planet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, was the former Princess of Wales the victim of a car accident or assassination? A lawyer examines the evidence. There's no doubt you have two people dead in the car. That indicates high-impact accident. That's G-forces acting on the body. You have to presume internal injuries. You have to get them to the hospital within what they call the golden hour. And in fact, had Diana been brought in in the golden hour, she had a better than 50% chance of surviving. This podcast is brought to you by BrightBiz. If you own a business or you've dreamed of starting one, there's a helpful free guide with 36 business power tools proven to boost sales, increase income, simplify your life, and give you better results with less effort. Best of all, this business toolbox is yours absolutely free. And these are useful online tools that make doing almost anything a lot easier. Just visit freebusinesstoolbox.com to grab your copy. I know there are a lot of websites out there. They offer you a special deal on something, but then they stick you in some annoying recurring program. But this isn't like that. There's no hidden thing to try. BrightBiz is giving away this free guide free of charge as a means of putting their best foot forward. But all good things must come to an end. So don't wait. Grab your free copy today. Visit freebusinesstoolbox.com. Freebusinesstoolbox.com. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. 
Welcome to your Friday. Well, today is Good Friday on the Orthodox calendar. Yesterday, we were busy baking Easter bread, tsureki, dyeing Easter eggs. In the evening, uh, the reading of the four Gospels between 7 and 10 p.m. Uh, the day before that, of course, was Holy Unction, which I mentioned to you on Wednesday. All part of Orthodox Holy Week. And I'll tell you one thing, the house smells amazing. The bread maker that prepares the dough for the uh, tsureki has been working overtime. Uh, about seven years ago, I traveled to England to produce several episodes for my television program, The Conspiracy Show. One of the episodes was on the death of Princess Diana. And I interviewed, at that time, Mohammed El-Fayed's head of security, uh, John McNamara. He was a retired Metropolitan Police Detective Chief Superintendent. And we met at the Kensington Hotel. And Mohammed Fayed released a number of never-before-seen photographs of Dodi and Diana to us so that we could use those in the episode. There have been a number of inquiries surrounding the fatal car crash that took the lives of Diana, her boyfriend Dodi El-Fayed, son of Mohammed El-Fayed, and their driver, Henri Paul. Uh, for many, the issue has been put to rest. Henri Paul was heavily intoxicated. He was racing through the Elma Tunnel in Paris to escape photographers who were in hot pursuit. For others, however, myself included, the evidence points to something far more sinister. Sarah Whalen is a journalist and attorney. She taught law as the Abraham Friedman Teaching Fellow at Temple University and won the New Orleans Press Club's Writer's Prize in 2006. She is the author of Royal Vengeance, The Assassination of Princess Diana and the Ancient Royal Cult of Human Sacrifice. Sarah Whalen, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? I'm fine, Richard. Thank you so much for having me on your show. My pleasure. I'm really looking forward to chatting. Likewise. Royal Vengeance, the assassination of Princess Diana and the ancient royal cults of human sacrifice. Now, what's fascinating here is you're the author, investigator, researcher, but you're also a journalist and you're a lawyer. And as a lawyer, you're all about the evidence, right? This is, you're not about speculating and theorizing. You look at the evidence. That's correct. And, and I have a background in forensics. I did criminal law for quite some time. So I was very uh, intrigued by the three inquests that went into Princess Diana's death. And I studied them carefully. But that being said, I fully expected her to be murdered. Uh, long before it actually happened. Uh, I, I believe that it was after the uh, Panorama interview on the BBC that she gave. Right. And, right. you know, I, my husband was then alive, and I turned around to him, and I said, they will kill her within the year. Because, she said, he'll, because she said he'll never be king, Charles? Correct. Yeah. Correct. And also, she was very disparaging to the queen, and she suggested herself as a regent for Prince William, which, I mean, that's hair-raising stuff to right. royalty. Right. So I just figured, you know, between the Andrew Morton book, which, of course, everyone in the royal family knew it was her writing the book. They weren't fooled for a moment. But I think they were ready to ride the Morton book out until Panorama came. And then she made it very clear how far she was willing to go 
And, you know, she would have, in fact, outstripped Charles in many ways. Sure. The Spencers Spencers could go back to the Tudors, whereas, (laughs) you know, the... uh, uh, the Windsors were, were uh, Johnny-come-latelys on the scene, really, weren't they? Well, you know, that was always her line. And, you know, I understand how the Spencers would look at themselves that way, especially modern Spencers. They make the point that, of course, the British royal family is not really English. Of course, it's German, mm-hmm. Saxe, Coburg, Gotha. But I think the English people made an accommodation with that, you know, vis-a-vis uh, the Queen and her father, and and Victoria, who was who was definitely German, as was her husband Albert. But I I think that Diana was very determined to push Charles out of the picture. You know, she made remarks like, you know, he could go off with his lady to Tuscany, and that was Camilla Parker Bowles. I don't think the royals were going to take that. And yep. and after the panorama interview, I said, I said they're they're going to kill her before the year is out. I was off by six months. Hmm. It's almost like War of the Roses, uh, but updated for the twentieth century. Because I think back then, you know, things were settled on the battlefield, or you know, a character like Richard the Third, if there was someone who was he perceived was getting in his way to the throne, he would simply have their their slit their throats slit in the middle of the night. And people tend to think, oh, we're far more sophisticated and genteel now. I don't think anything's really changed. No, and and you know, the royal family—it's not just Princess Diana who is killed. If you look carefully at the people closest to the throne, there have been several very unusual, very unexplained deaths that all relate to Diana and, you know, keeping the way for Charles safely paved. And, you know, the the habit of courtiers, the people who support the royal family, whoever they are, and this inner circle of people very close to the throne, they are the ones most invested in keeping the whole system going. And of course, now it has more money than it's ever had in in its history. But but that being said, there is a custom of killing the king, of killing the monarch. You know, there were very few queens. Usually it was a male figure who was sacrificed periodically. And this was part of the deal from ancient times when they came in. And usually their their head would be cut off often in battle, you know, usually they they met on a field, but sometimes they also were willingly executed in various ways, like if the crops were poor or the weather was bad or there was an outbreak of an unexplained disease, the king was sacrificed. And usually you could pinpoint it to every seven to nine years. And, And I think that the tradition of doing that is so ingrained in the English psyche, that they really don't blink when, you know, other, when modern monarchs either kill other people or are killed themselves. And I think if you go back to the Tudors, which you mentioned before, during Henry VIII's reign, this is when I think the custom switched in an important way. It used to be that the king had to sacrifice himself and be killed. He was a god on earth. 
And it was considered a normal thing for the god to sacrifice himself, and fertility would return. But in Henry VIII, which is a a very long reign with many different wives, you have a practice where the monarch finds a substitute sacrifice. He doesn't allow himself to be killed. He kills other people. Um, In Henry VIII's case, well, Anne Boleyn, Catherine Howard. And it's interesting, if you look at the Howard family throughout history, they are martyrs. They are people who the whole purpose of their line apparently is to offer themselves up as sacrificial lambs, as substitute sacrifices for the monarch. And I, I think it was a fairly conscious thing that they did quite knowingly. And people don't realize how many Howards were actually executed by Henry VIII, way more than just Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard, his I, wives. I didn't know that. Fascinating. Yes. So let's... In, in fact, the last one executed was Henry Howard, very young. Most people think that Henry Howard, not William Shakespeare, invented the English sonnet form. And he knew he was going to be executed. There are writings where, you know, he talks about it being his fate. And even observers at the court of Henry VIII, ambassadors like from Italy and, and other places, they're, they're observing what's going on. And they observe that the Howards are pretty regularly executed. Every seven to nine years, there's a Howard on the block. And they write about it, and they say, these are people born to this practice, which is an ancient English practice. And it's it's also found throughout other places in Europe. Uh, There's a great book written by, um, I mean, he's long dead, an anthropologist, Fraser, called The Golden Bough. And I would say that a good part of maybe half the book is about this practice of sacrificing the king. Okay. Well, uh, we can we can add uh, master historian to your uh, your long list of credits, journalist, uh, attorney. Uh, Sarah Whalen is with us. We're talking about the assassination of Princess Diana and the ancient royal cult of human sacrifice. That's the subtitle of her book, uh, Royal Vengeance. How much of it had to do with uh, the the possibility uh, that she were if she were to marry. Um, uh, Fayed, Dodi, Dodi Fayed, right. that the I suppose the co-regent of the future king would be a Muslim. You're right, and and you know actually both Diana and Charles had a long flirtation with Islam, and you know of course Diana openly marrying or being in a position to openly marry a Muslim. I mean she was in a very different position than Charles was. Charles to become king at the time before she was killed he could not take the throne most people don't understand this it would have been extremely difficult the American Episcopal Church has allowed remarriage of divorced people in the church for a long time it's very modern it's very open the English church has not been so open they only recently changed the rules after Diana was killed. Uh, Charles, if Diana was still living, Charles could have divorced her, but he could not have remarried, not in the church, while Diana was still alive. Uh, 
that is why Princess Anne remarried in the Church of Scotland. Her uh-huh. husband was still living, her first husband. So she married uh, her new husband, the Admiral, uh, in a Presbyterian ceremony, not a Church of England ceremony. And remember, the Queen has private churches. You know, Westminster Abbey, St. Paul's Cathedral, these are peculiars of the Queen. You can't go into these churches without her permission. You can't get married. If you want to get married in Westminster Abbey, you can't do it. That is the Queen's private church. It's been like this since before William I, the Conqueror. And, of course, when Henry VIII took over all the churches, literally, everything became his except special churches that were allowed to remain semi-independent by license. But Charles would not have been allowed to remarry without a change in the rules. And I actually went to Canterbury to speak with people in the archbishop's office to find out exactly how the rules worked. And most people were surprised, you know, that I even had any inkling that there would have been that issue. When she was dead, he could remarry. So that's a powerful motive to arrange a death. Well, so we have motive, and and we also, of course, have this letter uh, that uh, Diana wrote right. to her uh, more than one, yes, several letters. One to to her butler, uh, Paul Burrell, and right. these letters were were sat on by Scotland Yard. They buried them. They buried them for years, and she said, "I I think I'm going to be killed or seriously injured in a car crash, and I think Charles is going to orchestrate it." I mean, they're dynamite. They're they're horrific letters. If you were a a normal person who suffered such a death and you had family, you know, who wanted to make an issue of it, I mean, those letters would be powerful evidence, uh, you know, of her understanding of what fate would befall her. And she gave a motive. She said, Charles wants to marry again. She, She wasn't uh, you know, she wasn't even a high school educated person. She was highly intelligent, don't get me wrong, but she was not scholastic. So she wasn't going to sit down and write, you know, a cogent legal argument. But she knew that Charles could not remarry with her being alive. And she feared that they would execute her. And, uh, you know, she she was prepared for it. She spoke of it to many people. And 10 months later, give or take, she was right. Right. How much of this fear, paranoia, not that it wasn't uh, appropriate, but how much of that weighing on her constantly led to her depression, her fits of, of uh, self-abuse? Well, there's... You know, there's, here's the thing that complicates the picture. I mean, you have a person who's exquisitely beautiful and became more and more beautiful as time went by. I mean, she really was a strikingly beautiful person, very goddess-like in her manner. I mean, I think she really struck a deep instinctive chord with everyone in the world, but especially with the British people who have this sort of, you know, quasi-pagan history 
It's it's a long history of gods and goddesses and worshiping them. And of course, you know, all this paganism it gets woven in to Christianity over time. It doesn't really go away. It just assumes a new form. And she came across you know in a very deep and powerful way. And she was quite young when she married Charles. I think she was 20. She just turned 20. And, uh, you know, she was really just sort of thrown into Buckingham Palace. Her friendships were cut off. Her family was cut off, except for, you know, and they were no prizes, her family. This This was not a super supportive group of people. Her parents were divorced. They were angry. Um, you know, the sisters were detached and distant. The brother is very strange. And there are hints along the way of maybe an inappropriate sexual relationship with the brother that had to be very troubling to her mm. and certainly, you know, contributed to her bulimia. I don't blame Charles or the Queen for everything that happened to her psychologically. But there was no doubt that, you know, the pressure, uh, you know, what she perceived as a lack of attention to her needs. You know, she said it all when she wrote uh, Diana, Her True Story, which is absolutely her narrative. I mean, taken almost word for word from the tape recordings that were made. It's her side of the story, But she definitely had a psychosis going. I mean, the cutting of herself, the bulimia, scarring, this is is not normal. It indicates some psychopathology. I'm not going to blame everything on the Queen of England and Prince Charles. But even like she herself said, she said, I'll take half of it. In the panorama interview, I'll take half the blame. Right, right. She, she you know, there there could have been a lot of different outcomes. If you if you read heavily, you'll see that apparently Charles did try to, you know, enlist psychotherapists. Yes, she didn't touch. She she didn't trust them enough to you know, actually become true patients. From time to time, she would find someone. But, you know, psychotherapy takes a lot of work. And you have to go back. My my mom was a uh, psychologist and therapist, so I know a little bit about the process. It's a lot of work, and, and it requires commitment and hard looks at yourself. And I don't think Diana was willing to do that work. Well, when would she have had time? (laughs) I mean, they're just constantly, you know, on on parade in that life. Uh, And imagine had the press got a hold of that. She would have been just absolutely crucified yet again, I suppose. Let's go to the the night uh, um, in Paris, August 31, 97 at the Ritz. Sure. Um, this is, you know, not a number of little curiosities and coincidences. Uh, um, let me get your take on some of these. The idea that the, that they'd been driving around in this Mercedes all day and now they have a backup car, but that night, all of a sudden that car doesn't start. And so they have to go with the backup car. Uh, do you find anything odd there? Or is that just simply a coincidence? No, they needed to, the the assassins needed to sabotage the car. They needed to make sure the seatbelts didn't work. And so I'm sure uh, 
you know, it's not a coincidence at all. I believe that Henri Paul, and there was another employee at the Ritz uh, who was heavily involved in orchestrating the last night, I think they were probably in the pay of intelligence services. They were contract employees. They were not regular spies. They were not professionals. But they were paid to undertake certain things. And they've been doing these tasks for different intelligence agencies for years. I mean, Henri Paul had thousands and thousands of pounds in his bank accounts that there was no explanation for. He had a large amount of cash in his pockets at the time of his right, death. I think right. like $3,000 or something. Yeah, and yet he money. Right, and, and he had just only recently gone to his father asking for a loan so he could buy a flat in Paris. Now, if he's got right. 200,000 pounds in something like 15 different bank accounts, right. one has he to wonder what's going on yeah. there. Well, I think it's pretty clear that he was probably doing contract intelligence work on the side and getting paid for it. I don't think he, he realized he was going to be involved in an orchestrated automobile accident. And of course, you know, he, he paid for it with his life. I, I think he just thought he was going to drive them back to Dodie's apartment. Maybe he leaked some information, you know, about where he was going and what he was going to do because prior to getting into the vehicle, he does disappear for periods of time and it's caught by CCTV. It's right. well documented in right. the last inquest that from time to time he's not at the Ritz. He's clearly meeting with someone and, you know, he's not drinking, although he did probably have a drink in the Ritz bar. He's certainly not drunk. He's not inebriated. There's closed circuit TV footage of him tying his shoes. Yes. Yes. I mean, he couldn't possibly do it if he was supposedly as intoxicated as the French police claimed. Everybody and, that knew him said he was a, a social drinker at best. Right. Or at worst, right. whatever, however you want to describe it. But, but even then, you know, they brought in forensics experts in the last inquest, the Scott Baker inquest, and the guy who specialized in traffic accidents, he was, he was very precise. He's, you know, people drive with a few drinks in them all the time, and they do not, they do not have fatal accidents. And, and certainly, you know, this was a route that Henri Paul would have known. I mean, he knew Paris like the back of his hand. He was a Parisian. Um, there are at least 10 witnesses whose testimony points to the orchestrated crash and an effort to make it very fatal. And had they been wearing their seatbelts, probably nobody would have died. Right. It's interesting it have been- that the bodyguard, uh, Trevor Reese uh, Jones, and mm-hmm. he, even though he was... Uh, I believe in a coma for something like ten days, and when he came out, right. he 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 remembered very little. But ah, uh, he did remember that uh, that Henri Paul was drunk. Now, if you're the security guard for the for right. Diana, are you going to allow her to get into a car with a no. driver who's obviously drunk? Doesn't add no. up. No, and they, and they they both actually he and the other guard, Kez Wingfield. You know, their statements were very inconsistent. At times, they retracted the claim that he was drunk or that they didn't realize he was drunk. And But how could he possibly cover? I mean, the amount of alcohol that the French claimed that Henri Paul consumed was staggering. He wouldn't even be conscious 
You couldn't drive. It's ridiculous. And people know that there was probably contamination of the sample of fluid from Henri Paul at the autopsy. Either it was substituted for another uh, corpse of a man who committed suicide around the same time, supposedly by getting drunk and then sitting in his car and, you know, inhaling carbon monoxide. There's no chance that Henri Paul could have inhaled that much carbon monoxide to go into his bloodstream. He was killed almost instantly. You know, the body stops inhaling when it's dead. So there are many, many questions about the autopsy. It's highly unlikely he was drunk. And no, a bodyguard, you shouldn't let... They're at the Ritz. They could stay the night there. If the driver is drunk and there are too many crazy people, stay the night. You're in the Imperial Suite. It's like $7,000 a night. They've already had dinner there. I understand the engagement ring was waiting, you know, at, at Dodie's apartment. And in theory, the drive back would have been very easy. Either a straight shot down the Champs Elysees, which they may not have wanted to do because summer in Paris, you know, the Champs is going to be very busy. But also, the people who orchestrated the accident didn't want them on the Champs Elysees. It's entirely open. You can't stage an accident there. There'll be too many eyewitnesses. There'll be cameras all over the place, whereas uh-huh. the Alma Tunnel was completely enclosed, right? and they could do it. But even the there were many closed-circuit cameras leading up to the tunnel that ran 24-7, seven days a week, and yet none of them, this is <laughs> sounds so familiar. Right, none I've of seen them the, worked. I've seen that movie before. Yeah, none of them that night, coincidentally, were working. right. So you only have, I mean, as you say, the closed circuit in the tunnel is off. And you, you, uh, and they made sure there are no pictures. There are a handful of photos, even of the accident. I mean, just like three or four that were ever released. In fact, they seem to spend most of the evening, you know, terrifying photographers and, and getting all the pictures they could possibly get. And even then, later, there were break-ins to uh, photography agencies that ordinarily sell these pictures. James Andenson, who Mm. was a powerful actor, probably the driver of the white Fiat Uno, after he was found dead, supposedly of a suicide that appears to have been a murder, you know, there was a break-in at his photo agency. And even though they had valuable artworks and Lalique Crystal and, you know, all kinds of state-of-the-art electronics, the thieves made a beeline for Andenson's hard drive and his briefcase. Those were the things they took. Not sure whether Princess Diana was a dog lover. Uh, Probably. I know the Queen certainly loves her corgis. But how would you like to develop your dog's hidden intelligence to eliminate bad behavior and create the obedient, well-behaved pet of your dreams? A woman named Adrian Ferricelli, 
a professional certified dog trainer, has helped hundreds of dog owners train their dogs to be well-behaved, obedient, loving pets by bringing out the hidden intelligence inside the dogs. You can quickly eliminate any behavioral problem your dog has, no matter how badly you think it's ingrained, no matter what kind of dog you have. The science behind this is simple. You may have heard of neuroplasticity in the human brain. That's what allows our brains to learn new behavior. Well, your dog's brain has this same plasticity. With the right mental stimulation that Adrian teaches, any dog's brain will become more open and receptive to learning new information. Your dog will listen to you and understand what you want it to do. When this happens, bad behaviors simply fade away as more desirable ones appear in their place. So if you want to check out this remarkable dog training system, just visit realbusinessbargains.com. That's realbusinessbargains.com. RealBusinessBargains.com The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Then, it is violently opposed. Finally, it is accepted as self-evident. Let me just read that again. I don't know what that means. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Sarah Whalen, author of Royal Vengeance, The Assassination of Princess Diana and the Ancient Royal Cult of human sacrifice. Uh, you mentioned the white uh, Fiat Uno. So we, we should talk about that also, of course, this white uh, white flash, major white flash before the crash, which uh, has been employed in other assassinations as well. I'm thinking of, a, was it a, a former Ser- Serbian president that was knocked out right. that way? Um, Milosevic. Uh, he wasn't killed, but there was a plan to kill him that way to kill him in a tunnel when he was in a motorcade before he was captured and tried. There was a plan MI6 had, and it was seen by, uh, trying to remember his name, Richard... Tomlinson? Yeah, that's it, Tomlinson. He's former MI6, wasn't he? Correct. And Tomlinson had seen the plan for the assassination of Milosevic, which was to take place when Milosevic was in a motorcade going through a tunnel in Serbia. And there was going to be a blinding flash to disable the driver and cause the car to crash in a way that would be fatal. What you have to remember about the Alma Tunnel is it has, you know, if they had crashed to the right on the curved wall, even without seatbelts, they would have probably survived that crash, no trouble. But to crash into the pointed pillar and it was the 13th pillar of the Alma Tunnel. It's a very sharp, hard edge. To crash into that causes the kind of fatal injuries that were suffered by both Doty and Henri Paul, who were on the left side of the car where the impact was. Interestingly, and I might add, they were killed by their spines being severed in two or three places, and by the aorta being torn. And when your aorta is torn, you basically bleed out in four minutes or less. But on the right side of the car, which was slightly away from the impact into the column, Trevor Reese Jones goes through the windshield, probably when the car veered around and and hit the wall the second time. He goes through the windshield and he suffers horrific injuries to his face, but they're not fatal. He's just really, you know, horribly torn up. 
but he's not going to die from that. Princess Diana sitting behind Trevor Reese Jones, the impact into the 13th you know, square-shaped pillar causes her body to turn completely backwards. So she's 180 degrees back. Her back is up against Trevor Reese's Jones' seat. And, you know, her legs are, are kind of caught and an arm is twisted back. She has a tear to her pulmonary vein. It's potentially fatal if you don't treat it. You will bleed out, but it's a much slower bleed than what Dodie and Henri Paul suffered. She was in the car uh, over an hour, like an hour and 40 minutes before they even put her in the ambulance. She was alive and talking to people. And she was, um, by the time they got her to the hospital, she was definitely dead. Almost two hours later. Two hours. Right. Yes. There's something in medicine, they call it the golden hour. You know, in North America, we believe that they say this, the French, they say they stay and play at an accident scene. You know, they'll put you in the ambulance and they take your blood pressure and, you know, they fool around. In America and in Canada, we have a different system. It's called scoop and run. You grab them and you get to an emergency room as fast as you can go. And the emergency rooms were very close. They had great hospitals, even closer than the one Diana eventually went to, which was just down the road. I mean, you, Richard, you could have picked Diana up in a fireman carry and walked her to the hospital faster than the ambulance took her there. Right. And they they came to a complete stop outside of a A museum for, what, 10 minutes? Yes. And it was just across the street. And And they claim they have this this sensitive equipment on on the museum or in the ambulance (laughs) and it requires them to be completely immobile? Is that it was, it, was, it was crazy things. I mean, you know, the doctor who was supposedly assigned to Diana's ambulance should, first of all, she should have been the priority. He claimed not to recognize her. She, he didn't know who she was. He said he was much more concerned about Trevor Reese Jones, of course, who was very cut up. But, you know, Trevor Reese's Jones jugular is fine. He has no tear to his pulmonary vein. He's in considerable pain, but Diana was conscious. She was talking, but, you know, there's no doubt you have two people dead in the car. That indicates high-impact accident. That's G-forces acting on the body. You have to presume internal injuries. You have to get them to the hospital within what they call the golden hour. And, in fact... Had Diana been brought in in the golden hour, she had a better than 50% chance of surviving. The torn pulmonary vein could have been repaired. I'm not saying that there wouldn't have been problems, but she had a, she was healthy. She was super healthy. She was young. You know, she was she was in good shape. Now, the she skeptic, a, excuse me, Sarah, the skeptic yeah, would ahead. say, well, uh, in order for this to have been pulled off, then you would have had to have had the ambulance attendants in on it, the physicians at the hospital in on it and so forth. How do you respond? Well, I don't think the physicians at the hospital were in on it. In fact, 
you know, the, the physician she needed was not called by the emergency services. She needed a thoracic surgeon who could get in there and repair that tear. And if they brought her, they just popped her in the ambulance and taken her. She, like I said, she would have had a 50% chance of uh, surviving. But Dr. Martino, who in fact was not even a licensed medical doctor at the time, uh, certainly some scholars believe that Martino was in on it. And uh, it's very interesting. Martino has docked. He, he's given testimony in various uh, inquests, but the French testimony was entirely secret. The Scotland Yard testimony appears to just be a whitewash. And he appeared by, I think, Skype or something for the uh, Scott Baker inquest. He gave very inconsistent statements. No investigation was done into his bank accounts. He, I think at the time he gave the testimony he was working somewhere in Germany. There was nothing given about his background. It was a very cloudy kind of background. And like I said, he didn't even have his medical degree at the time that he treated Diana. He should not have been in that ambulance at all. You have to ask yourself, why didn't they have a real doctor in there? In fact, she was treated by several doctors who were shadowy people. You have the first doctor who comes along, and, and that's a guy who gives, what is, he's supposed to be an emergency doctor. He has no medical kit in his car. He has an oxygen mask and I think a blood pressure cuff or something. And he doesn't give her any aid. He, he calls for an ambulance, he says, and you know he gives descriptions of her condition. There were several doctors who I think personally, I mean, I would investigate to see if they were paid off. But the only way you can do that is by looking at their bank accounts. And apparently the British investigators did not do that. Who gave the order to embalm her or partially embalm her, which seemed rather out of the ordinary? Yeah, that's that's another thing, because she's not married to Charles anymore. In theory, and this is interesting, I guess, in theory, she's a subject of the queen. The argument was made while she's still in the royal family. She's the divorced wife. But, you know, that this is a civil rights issue that in England with royalty tends to get a little cloudy, but there's no doubt that the order to embalm her came from Buckingham Palace, from courtiers. And initially, they just embalmed the lower part of her body. That's supposedly to erase pregnancy. You know, and then there's all these dramatic stories about the room being very hot. You know, they have a perfectly good morgue in the hospital where they put dead bodies all the time to keep them cool. Instead, they lay her out in a hospital room on an upper floor where there's no air conditioning. And then they tape the windows with blankets, supposedly to keep photographers from, from photographing her. But at the same time, it makes the room boiling hot, which speeds the decomposition of her body. It's bizarre. Mm. Let's it's go back a to bizarre the bizarre treatment of a corpse. 
Let's go back to the tunnel for a moment because I want to circle back sure. to the white Uno. There's, so there's this flash, and witnesses said that there was a motorcycle that sped up from behind, got in front, and then we see that then there's the white flash. Right. So then where does where and when does the white Uno enter into this picture? Okay. Well, the motorcycles, and these are real motorbikes. There's a big difference between the scooters that the paparazzi use, you know, to chase celebrities and the kind of motorbikes, really big motorbikes. And the riders on the motorbikes were supposedly dressed in black leathers. They had darkened helmets. They could not be identified. This is not a bunch of paparazzi just jumping around Paris, chasing the Mercedes. They pick up the Mercedes right at the Place de la Concorde. And there are, if you put all the witness identifications together, it looks to be at one point there are five motorcycles surrounding the Mercedes. One is the one that moves in front of it. It goes on the left as Henri Paul is driving into the Alma Tunnel. It passes on the left, a very dangerous pass that would have caused Henri Paul to move to the right. But there was already a black vehicle or a dark vehicle, a sedan, tailing the Mercedes and probably causing it to pick up speed. You know, if you're tailgated, you move faster than if you're not. Sometimes it just pressures you into picking up more speed. Certainly with the motorcycles, Henri Paul would have just involuntarily been speeding. That being said, he's doing 60, 65 miles an hour. It's certainly not unheard of in Paris traffic to go that fast. And when he comes to the part of the Alma Tunnel, the white Fiat Uno is just drifting around. It's going very slowly. Witnesses saw it. There was a taxi driver who was taking a break. And he looked down and he saw the white Fiat Uno kind of dawdling, drifting back and forth. You know, the road to the Alma is a two-lane road on, on each side. And the, the Fiat is in the middle. The Mercedes is coming up very quickly, wants to pass. The motorbikes are surrounding it. And, and initially, it makes contact with the Fiat Uno. It breaks the taillights. I mean, the people in the Mercedes would have felt it. And, you know, instead of, you know, pulling aside like a normal driver would do, the Fiat, the Fiat then moves around, but it, it forces the Mercedes into the 13th pillar. And there is, in fact, a tire mark. The right front tire of Princess Diana's Mercedes has a mark on it from the Fiat Uno where the Fiat pushed it. And that would have been the push that sent it into the pillar with the blinding flash. I mean, the driver didn't have a prayer. He just would have lost all control. And this is not a flash from an ordinary camera. Every witness described it as a blinding flash. This is a military strobe uh, that is used to blind helicopter pilots so that they'll crash. It's the same kind of weapon. There was a witness who, who reported a passenger on one of the motorcycles. The motorcycle pulls to a, a stop after right. the car crashed, and the 
passenger jumps off and looks into the Mercedes. Correct, to check to see if anybody is alive. And they did not believe that, at least they didn't think anyone was survivable because they crossed their arms, crossed the chest, which is a military gesture for, like, everybody's dead. They make it when, say, they're bombing, you know, a house or something. They go around and they look for survivors. If they don't see any, they make that cross mark across their chest. And and that was the Mercedes, the um not all the motorcycles had double driver and passenger pinion, someone riding pinion. But the one that shot the flash did. You need one person to drive, another person to turn around and shoot the flash. And they would have had, you know, protection against losing control of their motorbikes. This was a military operation. I, I think it's quite clear. Well, if they were, let's say they were paparazzi or they were private citizens, uh, they have a good Samaritan law in Paris. You have to stop. You have to stop and help. Right. If there's an accident, especially if you caused it, but if you even see an accident, you have to stop and render aid. And in fact, in Paris, many people did stop. When they saw the accident, the first thing they did was they grabbed their phone and, you know, they started calling the police. Calls started flooding in. And, uh, but yes, the motorcycle guy, in theory, if he was, you know, just an ordinary citizen or just a person, he would have had to have stopped, opened the Mercedes door and rendered aid. But he didn't. He made that cross arms gesture and then jump back on the motorbike and nobody ever saw them again. Even the white Fiat Uno witnesses said that the driver was looking behind him. He didn't stop to check to see if anyone was alive. He went around the wreckage and took off. And, you know, nobody had a clue. Even when they started looking for all the white Fiat Unos, because the Fiat Uno had left a paint scrape on the right side of the Mercedes. So they had forensic evidence. They could pinpoint the year, or at least a range of years, that the Fiat Uno was made. They knew it was a Fiat Uno just from the paint. And they started supposedly trying to hunt down the Fiat Unos, although it was Mohammed Al-Fayed and his team of investigators who eventually found John Andenson and the white Fiat Uno. Initially, um, someone tried to pin it on a Vietnamese, but uh, it's, it, no, no action was ever taken against this Vietnamese Fiat Uno driver. I doubt very much that anybody in France believed that you know, he was the driver of that car. But Andenson, when he was finally located and the Fiat Uno found, he gave very inconsistent statements, as did his wife and his son, about his whereabouts. And it turned out that, you know, on the night of the crash, he probably was in Paris. I mean, he left very early the next morning, just a few hours after the crash. He would have been heading to Orly Airport, and he got on a plane going to Corsica, where he laid low for a couple of days, then came back. But like I said, eventually, you know, after I think he was interviewed maybe three times, and the French were really focusing on him. And he 
supposedly killed himself by burning himself to death in another car. Right, right. Right, and and the fireman who saw the flames and the smoke couldn't, you know, he he said the car was locked from the inside, could, but he saw Andenson clearly, and he said that Andenson had two bullet holes in his head the back of his well, head you, if i recall <laughs> well you, you don't get i mean two bullet holes you don't get that's and true not with saying, a suicide that's right yeah right <laughs> and people were saying oh you know you don't know what you're talking about you're just a fireman and he said no he said i've dealt with suicides many times he said and i know a gunshot wound when i see one he said i've dealt with gunshot wounds i he he never wavered in what he saw but nobody could stop the fire, so everything burned to a crisp. But no weapon was ever found in the car. As a lawyer... So if, if, I guess he would have had to throw the gun out, you know, and lock right. the doors. That's it. It's really silly. That's right. So much of it is. Uh, right. As a lawyer, if you, were to, if you were to take this case to court uh, and present your evidence, do you think you have a winning case? Yes, I do. I think that, you know, they had an excellent lawyer. Mohammed Al-Fayed hired um, Michael Mansfield. He's a very good barrister in London, but I myself was, was very surprised. It didn't seem to me that Mansfield pushed as hard as he could. I know the English system is different, and an inquest is maybe a little different than a criminal trial. But, you know, things like the monetary records just were never obtained. And uh, he, the Queen and Prince Philip were never required to testify. Neither was Charles, even though you have that damning letter. I guarantee you, in a North American court, a husband like Prince Charles, he would have to come in and answer some questions. But the Queen is apparently immune from any kind of investigation, let alone prosecution. I read a, an article delineating the powers of the of the Queen. She is above the law. She could do yes. anything she, if she wanted to. She could haul someone into Buckingham Palace and have them flogged, quartered, beheaded, just <laughs> on her on her whim. She could. She has right. that authority. But now they, they have accidents instead. You know, I mean, Princess Diana is not the only, she's not the only strange death. I mean, look at, and it only came out much later, decades later. Look at her relationship with her bodyguard, Barry Manneke. You know, maybe many people point to James Hewitt, her lover, as being Prince Harry's father. Yes. But I don't know. I mean, you know, he certainly physically looks a lot like Hewitt, but Barry Manneke had reddish hair. If you look in photographs, you'll see that Manneke's hair is darkened. And they claim a much later uh, employment history for Manneke than is true. I've seen photographs of Manneke guarding Diana from 1982. And what happened to Manneke? Manneke died in a traffic accident. That's a great mystery. He was, it, he was supposedly caught in a sexual position, an intimate position, with Princess Diana the night before Sarah Ferguson's wedding to Prince Andrew. And if you look at films of the wedding, you'll see Diana looking, you know, frankly, she looks like she's on a tranquilizer or something. And she's wearing this teal dress with black dots. 
she looks terrified. She's in the church. It appears she's pleading with Charles. And there's no audio on the film. You can see the queen mother just staring like a stone and Charles being very cold. And she appears to be pleading. After the service, she picks her children up in her arms. She always has one in her arms. She never lets go during the whole day. I mean, she was caught with Manneke. And she, I think, was very aware of the consequences of that. Manneke was removed from his position, but he was not fired from the police. He had some civil rights, so apparently they transferred him to a diplomatic detail. He was supposedly at a party. He didn't have his car for some reason. He could have called his wife. He was married with two children. could have called his wife to pick him up or something. He took a ride home. He rode pinion on the back of a motorcycle driven by another policeman, supposedly a car driven by a 17-year-old girl named Nicola Chop, uh, came out from an, an, a side road, and Manneke, there was a car that jumped in front, and so Nicola Chop didn't see Manneke on the motorbike. And she went to make the turn. There was no impact. Supposedly, the policeman driving the motorcycle slid the bike. Manneke went flying off the back of the bike. And he ended up going through, I think, the rear window of Nicola Chop's Ford Fiesta. And side, side rear uh, window on the right. He broke his spine in two places. He was propped up against a tree. Nicola Chop was, of course, you know, very upset. There was an eyewitness, Richard Purcell, a passerby, who, you know, was comforting her. He observed the scene. He said he saw a man who looked like a doctor attending Manneke, and Manneke then died. And uh, later, the police never called Richard Purcell to testify at the inquest. They pressured him to disappear. Uh, he was later uh, supposedly committed suicide. Nicola Chop was so upset, she moved to the United States, I think. And she, she lives under radar. She claimed that the driver of the car was a, was a woman. So... Years later, I think uh, a British newspaper came up with a story that they had found the driver of the car that caused the accident with Manneke, and they combined things. He was a doctor. They refused to identify him. Uh, you know, they said Nicola Chop got it all wrong because she was 17 and upset. It, they can tell any story they want, but in fact, Manneke was killed. Princess Diana always thought that Manneke was bumped off, and she told people about it. She told Hewitt, and she even made films. She made videos saying that, you know, Manneke was her dream man. You know, they had a great love affair, and he was killed, and so there's plenty of evidence that certainly Diana believed that Manneke was killed. And interestingly, she said she wanted to visit his grave. And she found out that Manneke had been cremated and his ashes scattered, which means 
there's no DNA. Aha. <laughs> how convenient. How convenient. Yeah. Well, they it, really know how to tie things up in a nice, t- tidy little knot, don't they? It seems, you know, it seems like they do. And, and, and they, I must add, they get a lot of help doing it because uh, there is a inner circle of people around the royals who are their enablers. I mean, they couldn't do this without the help of, you know, these these people, these courtiers who apparently make arrangements and nobody questions their arrangements. Well, Sarah, you keep tugging at those uh, those threads. Uh, you're untangling a lot of those knots. You're doing a great job. Thank you so much for this. Thank you. I really appreciate your time, Richard. My Thank pleasure. you so much. Royal Vengeance, the Assassination of Princess Diana and the Ancient Royal Cult of Human Sacrifice. Before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'm going to reveal episode 53's subject matter. Just ahead, the weekly draw for one of my Strange Planet CDs. First, I need to tell you about Life Extension's amazing Mega Green Tea Extract. It provides powerful antioxidant effects throughout the body. Green tea contains health-promoting polyphenols, including a powerful antioxidant, which has been the subject of extensive scientific research. Why not pour on these multiple health benefits? Green tea is a powerful antioxidant. It supports cell membrane integrity, boosts liver detoxification, enhances immune function, and helps maintain healthy blood cholesterol, LDL and triglyceride levels, and much more. Life Extension's Mega Green Tea Extract is decaffeinated, yet it contains more polyphenols in one capsule than seven cups of green tea. The Chinese have used green tea for therapeutic purposes since 2000. BC. More recently, volumes of published scientific findings attest to its multiple health benefits. One capsule a day of Mega Green Tea Extract is all you need. Give your body what it needs. Order right now from Life Extension and save 25%. Just go to smartclickidea.com. 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 Time for the draw. This week's winner of Strange Planet Volume 1 is... All right. Bev Simpson of Montreal, Montreal, Quebec. Congrats, Bev. Hey, if you want to get in on the weekly draw, just rate and review this podcast. Grab a screenshot of your review. Email it to me at richardserrett1 at gmail.com. And don't forget to include your full name and mailing address. Then be listening every Friday when we do the draw. Good luck. Coming up on episode 53, we'll discuss the recent off-the-record statement made by Pope Francis that hell is not real. Did he actually reverse 2,000 years of church doctrine? Is hell real? Where is it? Who goes there? Is there any escape? Until next time, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.